Amen. Well, good morning. Glad you're here. We are in a series called Questioning Christianity. We normally just preach straight through books of the Bible, but this fall we've been in a, a topositional, is what I like to call it, a topositional series, not quite topical, not quite expositional, asking some of the hard questions, asking hard questions, and they've been hard answers. It's been a, it's been a weighty series. And this morning we turn to the issue of more weightiness, and that is of suffering. Last week we looked at the problem of evil and there showed that I think the greater good defense is the most biblically faithful response to the problem of evil. And it's not just a problem for Christians. The problem of evil is a problem for everybody, especially atheism. But this week I want us to look specifically at the rich resources that the Christian faith provides for sufferers. For those who are suffering, those who have suffered, those who will suffer, which of course is all of us. Suffering is a universal problem. It is a universal experience. And there are all sorts, all sorts of varieties of suffering. First Peter 1 even says that. Peter says that we've been grieved by various trials. There's the suffering we bring on ourselves. There's the suffering of being abandoned, the suffering of sickness. And there's small things. You know, there's the petty suffering, like getting older and having the experience of injuring yourself while asleep. <laughs> there are hard jobs. There are difficult bosses. Your sports team continually blows it. Your in-laws live 15 minutes away, five minutes by broom. <laughs> I kid, I kid. And then there's serious suffering. There's the death of a loved one. As we see right now, there's hurricanes. There's tsunamis. There's loss of job. There's financial instability. There's chronic pain. There's infertility. There's inexplicable fights with depression. There's loneliness. There's wayward children and on and on and on. All of us experience it, some degree or another. Some of it's small, some of it's heavy. We will experience it both. And every one of us responds in different ways depending upon our personality type and our maturity in the faith. Some of us get angry. Some of us get discouraged. Some of us isolate ourselves. And life is hard. It's just hard. And I want us at the South Side to be real about how hard life is. Too many evangelical churches have their little happy, clappy, everything is always okay. For one, that's not realistic. Two, it's just not biblical as we're going to see. Life is hard. <laughs> but Christianity brings unique resources to help us not only survive, but flourish through the difficulties of life. But life is full of suffering. Life is full of hardship. The Onion, which is a secular satirical website, they nailed it. They nailed it a few uh, years ago with this piece. And the headline was, the average time spent being happy drops to 13 seconds per day. Here's the piece. A study out of Berkeley, California, published in the latest issue of the Journal of Social Science, has revealed that the amount of time spent being happy has dropped to an all-time low of 13 non-consecutive seconds per day. According to our data, the average American experiences 0.8 second window of happiness upon awakening before remembering that they're conscious beings in a relentlessly bleak and numbing world, said Dr. Derek Moore, lead author of the paper. Other periods of happiness include 1.9 seconds after a good meal, 0.6 seconds upon receiving a paycheck, 
1.1 seconds following completion of a scientific study. And this is secular and we're in a church, so I'm going to edit the rest of it just to say there's another 2.5 seconds (laughs) as well. (laughs) Continues, researchers also recorded the smallest period, researchers also recorded the smallest period of contentment yet, a 3.7 milliseconds interval preceding the realization that one was experiencing happiness and that it could not possibly last. (laughs) Life is hard and suffering is universal and Christianity provides unique and rich resources for dealing with suffering. Last week, I mentioned just a few of these, just in terms of historic Christian doctrine. You have creation. God created a world and it was very good. There was no suffering. There was no death. There was no tears. But then we have the fall. Sin entered and now the world is not the way it ought to be. So the doctrines of creation and fall help us understand this. The doctrine of God's sovereignty, he's in control, and his goodness. He is powerful, but he's also good, as we're going to experience a good bit this morning. There's the doctrines of incarnation. God became a man through the person of Jesus. So he's not aloof. He's not distant. He doesn't separate himself from suffering. He enters in for his people and suffers on the cross, the doctrine of atonement. There's the doctrine then of resurrection and the renewal of all things. History is headed somewhere. And Christianity is a religion of hope. He will make all things right. And suffering, as I said, is just one of the main themes of the Bible. It is mentioned and dealt with in almost every book of the Bible. There are whole books dedicated to the theme of suffering. We've seen some of them in the last year. First Peter is one of them. Many people call First Peter the syllabus for suffering saints. And in there, I made this statement when we were preaching through 1 Peter a few months ago. I made a statement. I knew as soon as I said it that I was going to preach a whole sermon about this sentence. And here it is. It's that suffering comes from our Father for our good to refine our faith and to prepare us for glory. So I want to spend the next 30 minutes or so looking at each phrase of this sentence biblically. And the first one's probably the most important. We spent a good time last week on this theme. And that is that suffering comes from God, our Father. God is sovereign over all things, even the hard things. And we've got to get this. This, I think we have to get it. And so much of what I'm going to say this morning, we have to get on this side of suffering. Because when deep suffering comes, it's too late, right? You've been there. It is hard to think clearly in the midst of it. And someone comes and tells you the things I'm going to tell you this morning in the midst of it, it's hard and rare to have ears to hear it. And so we need to know this and hear this and stand on this rock before we enter in. And one of those is that God is in control. He is sovereign. And this is the first truth the enemy will seek to attack and take away from us. And there's a number of ways he will do it. There are all sorts of ideologies that try to keep us and keep the church from this vision of who God is, whether it's open theism. There are Bible teachers in this city that believe in open theism. It's the idea that God does not know the future, much less control it. He doesn't even know it. That's heresy. That's not the God of Scripture. There's naturalism, the idea that, well, there is no God. There's secularism. Put him off to the little private corner. He has no real action in the world. There's the prosperity gospel, which is alive and well in this country, and we're importing it all over the world. The idea that if you only had enough faith, you would never suffer. Garbage. There's theological liberalism that's going to deny the hard truths of Scripture, like this one, that God is in control even over the hard things. But last week, I think we read a dozen passages. I just want to look, I want to remind us of four of those so we're fresh in our minds. Lamentation chapter 3, 
Verse 38, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Isaiah 46.9, God says, I am God. There is none like me declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. Notice that, the end from the beginning. From ancient times to things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Or one of my favorites, Ephesians chapter 1. This is a rock that I stand on. 111, in him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Suffering is from God, but it's not just from God. It's from God our Father. He is for us. If you are a believer, he is for you. He is your father. He's shown us that in the cross of Christ. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He is our father and he is for us. In Philippians, towards the end of chapter 1, Philippians 129, uh, Paul speaks of two gifts. He says, for it's been granted to you not only to believe, but also suffer for his sake. It's Philippians 129. Notice there's two gifts in that verse. It's been granted to you not only to believe. Belief is a gift. If you are a believer in here today, at the end of the day, it's because God gifted you with that belief. It's all of grace from first to last. That's what we read in Ephesians chapter 2 as well. It's by grace through faith that we've been saved. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. That's the first gift. We like that one. The second one is suffering. For it has been granted to you not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Suffering is a gift. And if you're like, I don't want that gift, I hope by the end of this morning, you'll see why we need it. Suffering is from God our Father and it's for our good. It's for our good. Suffering is not punishment. Oh, how we have to get this. There's no wrath left for the believer. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for us. We spent a whole week on that the other day. But God, our Father, loves us. So he will discipline us. Not wrath, but discipline from a Father who loves. If you've got a Bible, turn in it or turn it on to Hebrews chapter 12. If you're looking at a pew Bible, look at page 176. read together Hebrews chapter 12 verse 5 Hebrews 12 verse 5 and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline, verse 7, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. And again, just like Romans 8, 28 and 29, what is our good? That we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Can I get an amen? But later, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If we experience no discipline, the writer of Hebrews says we're not his children. Without discipline, we're illegitimate children, but our perfect father disciplines us for our good. It seems painful at the time, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those trained by it. This is so important. God is for you. When the trial comes, he's not punishing you. He's drawing you near. It's not because he's against us. Isn't this a game changer? It's a game changer if we believed it. Luther said suffering would be unbearable if, it were not, if we weren't certain that God is for you and with you. And again, this is where Romans 8.28 comes in. This is my home base, right? God works all things together for the good of those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose. God works all. And then in verse 29, he tells us what that good is. And that good is that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. This verse is so worldview forming. It's a game changer. Maybe you guys heard, this has been several years now, about Bill Gates. He's got a little extra money and time on his hand, and he came up with what he called the omni-processor. Maybe you heard about it. And he would go, and he was being very generous, and he was trying to get clean drinking water, and so he builds, and he's got all these engineers with him and build this machine. And it, what it does is it takes sewage and goes through the processor, and it's fairly elaborate, and then it turns to clean drinking water turns sewage to clean drinking water. They would have it tested. He, would, he drank it and everything. It was good. It's pretty amazing. Listen, Romans 8.28 is the ultimate omniprocessor. You take all the mess of life and filter it through the truth contained in Romans 8.28 and it becomes a life-giving fountain of water because then the worst things that happen to you are ultimately the best things because God is in control and he's for you. Oh, that we believe this when the trial comes. I mentioned last week, John Newton has been a real help to me in this, on this theme. And he, I quoted him, he said this about Romans 8, 28, all shall work together for good. Everything needful that he sends Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Church, if we own this deep down in our bones, it would change our life. Nothing is needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends. If you're experiencing it right now, it's because your character, your soul, your patience, you needed it. 
and it's from him and he loves you and he has good purposes through it. Everything needful that he sends, nothing is needful that he withholds. If he withholds something, we didn't need it, even if we think we did. He knows so much better than us. I've shared this before. It's one of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon. He says, it would be a very sharp and trying experiencing to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. What are the alternatives? That the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity, end quote. How wonderful to live in a world created and sustained by this God who loves you and is in control and has good purposes even with the hard stuff. There's a book called 1,000 Gifts, Ann Voskamp wrote it, and she shares how she struggled quite a bit for most of her life with losing a sister, and she struggled. In the end, she realized that it boiled down to whether or not she trusted God. And here's what she writes. She said that God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right. He's already given us the incomprehensible. Suffering is from God our Father, and it's for our good. You, if you are a believer, you are enveloped at every moment in his fatherly care. In an environment where absolutely nothing can touch you without his gracious and wise and good permission. He's our father who loves us. He will sometimes wipe our eyes with tears that we might see more clearly. Scotty Smith said sometimes he'll use pain to make us cry uncle so that we might cry Abba. Suffering comes from our father for our good to refine our faith. God uses trials to strengthen us. If you still got your Bible open to Hebrews, flip over a few pages past James to 1 Peter chapter 1. Suffering comes from our Father for our good to refine our faith. 1 Peter, the syllabus for suffering saints, chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while... If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that, here's the purpose statement of the trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice these trials are just a little while. Weeping may last for a night, but joy is coming in the morning. This life will soon be past, and then we're going to be in glory forever. It's just a little while. These trials are just a little while in the grand scheme of things. And these trials are various. We've seen that. There are all kinds. And the purpose here, the so that in verse 7, is that your faith will be tested and shown genuine. Tested by fire and found a result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus returns. In the image of fire, fire doesn't destroy, fire refines. Again, John Newton helps me. He says, a smith 
when about to make a poker, puts his iron into the fire. The Lord, when he means to make his people more holy, puts them into the furnace. Again, we've got to remind ourselves that the trials are not wrath. There's no wrath for the believer. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Suffering is not punishment. Again, Newton says, there is no sting in your rod, nor wrath in your cup. And so the church has sung for some 200 years, when through fiery trials our pathway shall lie, his grace all sufficient will be our supply. The flame will not hurt you. He only designs our dross to consume and our gold to refine. He means for the flame not to hurt you, not to destroy you. What he's doing is he is consuming the dross. He's refining the gold. Fire refines. It purifies. God will use suffering to bring us to a point we would not arrive without suffering. So these trials, they strengthen our faith. Tim Keller calls suffering the gymnasium of God. They make us spiritually stronger. We read that in Hebrews 12. We, those who are trained by the discipline of the Lord, they help us to rely on him. They rid us of self-reliance. That's what we see over in 2 Corinthians. If you want to flip there, turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. If you're in the Pew Bible, it's page 146. God uses sufferings to rid us of self-reliance. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Here we have the thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is, but we know we wanted it gone. But here we learn the divine purpose in the thorn. 12, verse 7. So to keep me, he just talked about all the visions he had seen. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am well pleased with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is so interesting, right? It's given. This flesh was given. It's a divine passive idea God gave this thorn but notice what he calls it he calls it a messenger of Satan but notice the purpose the purpose was so that he would not be conceited so the Lord has purposes even through the messenger of Satan it's the same thing we see in Job Luther said the devil is God's devil so even through the messenger of Satan God's purpose is to keep the apostle Paul from becoming conceited Satan wants Paul conceited he does not want him humble. But through this thorn, God is using this trial to keep him from becoming conceited. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient. Jesus says, my power is made perfect in weakness. God will give us grace in the time of need. And he shows his power, not in the way we think. 
shows his power and weakness. His crown is not made of gold, it's made of thorns. His kingdom is upside down. And so how should we respond when it comes? Notice what Paul does. Paul boasts all the more gladly because of his weakness, because he knows the power of Christ will rest on him. I wonder, do you boast in your weakness? Do you boast when the trials come? Paul delights in his weaknesses. He delights in the insults. He delights in the hardships, in the persecutions, in the calamities. Because when I'm weak, then I am strong. Man, what a word for American in 21st century. When I am weak, then I am strong. What a word for the church. In our weakness, the grace and power of Christ is made known. Not on our supposed fake strength. <laughs> so suffering and trials are from God for our good to refine our faith. Suffering refines our faith. It humbles us and it fuels our prayer life. Again, Newton said, trials give new life to prayer. Trials lay us at his feet. They lay us low and they keep us there. And those of you who've suffered hard know that. Our communion with Christ tends to weaken when all is well, right? When everything's going well, man, we kick back, take off our shoes, unpack our bags. But when the going gets rough, we're reminded afresh, oh, Lord, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. And part of the strengthening of our faith, part of God's design and the strengthening of us through our suffering is that we might then be used to strengthen others. If you're still in 2 Corinthians, flip back to the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Suffering is the classroom of compassion. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as we share, as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. I wonder if you see that. Do you view your suffering as the classroom of compassion? God is at work in you, and he means not only to strengthen your faith, but he means that through you on the other side to strengthen the faith of others. Do you view it this way? Or is it just, woe is me, everything against me? Bury yourself. Or do you know God's for me? He's at work, as painful as it is, through the tears. I mean, there is a reality in the Christian life that you can be weeping yet be full of joy. I wonder when, when people are experiencing trials, how do we pray? Often, especially if it's just a physical deal, we just pray for the physical deal, right? It's the organ recital, you know, for the hip and for the knee and for the liver and all that, and we stop there. We should pray there, but that really should be the beginning of the prayer. We ought to pray, Lord, would you help her to get through this? Lord, would you heal her of whatever this is? Would you use the doctors, guide their hands, give them wisdom, and in it, Lord, would you strengthen her faith? 
Would she come through this stronger, loving Jesus Christ more deeply, hope more firmly set on the renewal of all things? And on the other side, if it doesn't go well, Lord, would she end well? Would she praise you in spite of the loss? Would she say with Job, the Lord gave, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And on the other side, would you, Lord, use this trial so that she might go and be a witness to others who are suffering the very same things? Sufferings come from our Father for our good to refine our faith and to prepare us for glory. Suffering comes and it weans us off the world. It makes us hope for heaven. I think one of the reasons we in America are not a people of hope, again, is because we're so comfortable here. Believers in persecuted areas that are dirt poor, full of disease, they long for the return of Christ. We want him to take his time. We're good. Let me do A, B, and C before you return. We kind of like it here. But suffering comes in and it reminds us. This world's not our home reminds us of the resurrection of the dead, reminds us, Romans 8, 18, that we consider the sufferings of this present world not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Trials keep us from tying our identity to the things of this world too closely. I was asked to do a funeral of someone who uh, had passed uh, in the 80s, and when he was young, he had a daughter that, that passed away at 18 years old. And I was talking with the family. And one of the characteristics of this man was, you know, he never really cared about the things of the world. He had mere material possessions. He just didn't care about stuff. And the son of this man said, you know, and that really happened when he lost his daughter. He lost his daughter and all of a sudden stuff just didn't matter as much. Made him think about what really matters. That's what trial does, doesn't it? It loosens our grip on the things that aren't going to last for 10,000 years weans us off the world it prepares us for glory they break us off from our worldly securities suffering will take off our short-sightedness remind us that the pattern of the christian life is the pattern of jesus himself it is suffering then glory romans chapter 8 verse 17 we are children of god and of children then heirs heirs with christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him Suffering, then glory. Suffering now, glory is coming. Again, John Newton, it is happy for us if we have suffered enough to make us desire a better country. It is happy for us if we've suffered enough to make us desire a better country. I want to close with a short video of my man D. Now, I actually don't know D. He's a member of Watermark Church, but this video was shown to our staff back in the spring, and it's an example of a man who views suffering as from his father for his good to refine his faith and to prepare him from glory. One who has prayed and sung, whatever my lots, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's turn to this video.